This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Can we begin with prayer, please? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I think I'll pause and let the, the, the group ask me some questions before I, I, I lecture. Is that okay? So questions about Flannery O'Connor, the uh, woman, the person. Gosh, there are thousands of things to say. Uh, a couple of things just about her illness. O'Connor never complained. O'Connor never said, why me? Her best say, one of the last letters are really is a kind of almost complaint. She writes to her, she loves the southern dialect of white trash speech. And so she would say, pray that the lupus don't finish me off too quick. But to me, the most poignant of all her sayings is this. I can take it, meaning what she knew would be her early death, I can take it all as a blessing with one eye squinted. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Do you hear that balance? Radical faith and radical doubt. I tell my students, those go together. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. She says the profoundest prayer in the New Testament. So the more you learn about her, um, the more your life will be changed for the better. Um, I might point out right from the start, you can turn that off now if you'd like, that if you will get this book, The Habit of Being, and read one letter every night, she will save your soul. She is hilariously funny pokes fun most often at herself. Um, her wit is sometimes really cutting, sarcastic. Um, but what's most remarkable, she mostly pokes fun at herself. See, the satirist is one, and she saw herself as a satirist, is one who punctures things that are bloated and blown up. A satirist wants to deflate that which is hyperflated. Whereas for Flannery O'Connor, a Christian is more of a comic than a satirist, a comic writer. Because she uses the word comedy precisely in Dante's sense. When Dante came to write uh, the comedy, that's what he called it, la commedia. He did not call it La Divina Commedia. That's a very late, very late addition uh, to the title. And there are about four funny lines in the whole. How many of you have read the comedy? Good, good. Some Bader graduates here who've read it, I might be proud to say. Products of our great text program. Sorry. Anyhow, uh, by comedy, Dostoevsky, and more generally, Christians mean the final triumph of good over evil that opens out to newness of life. As in the New Testament, the great banquet feast of the Lamb. And therefore, her stories are without fail comic. Even though most of them end in death, you have to remember some of her quips because they're so keen. She said, now remember, while a lot of people get killed in my fiction, don't nobody get hurt. <laughs> in other words, nobody's tortured. Nobody has their fingernails pulled out. You know, Dostoevsky has a character who has his testicles cut off and is made to eat them. Nothing like that in O'Connor. No torture, no grimness. 
Only one death actually occurs on stage. They all occur, most of them at least, off stage. So the task I lay before you tonight is to try to see how O'Connor turns the violence of our world on its head so as to show the final victory of the good, of the true, of the beautiful. Tragedy, by contrast, a very noble art form, the noblest of the ancient Greeks, is indeed a high, high form of art, but it almost always ends in final death. Death gets the last word. Now, it's again illuminating death. Oedipus has to claw his eyes out about what he hasn't seen, but it's still a word of final defeat. As I say, an ennobling defeat, but nothing beyond the walls of the world. Flannery O'Connor was once asked whether she believed that life was essentially tragic. She said, um, again, I try to imitate her voice. Uh, I'm a redneck from East Texas, so I'm pretty good at it. Uh, she said, no, life ain't no tragedy. Tragedy is something that can be explained by the professors for which all thanksgiving. <laughs> life is the will of God. Life is the will of God. Now that's a hard claim, an exceedingly hard claim. And therefore, for her, life is comic once a person embraces the will of God no matter what. No matter what. With what she calls, again, all of her sayings are radically paradoxical, with what she calls the blind eye of faith. How do you like the blind eye of faith? We walk not by sight. We're blind. But the blind eye of faith. She also very much liked, I'll move to this very quickly, St. Thomas's definition of the prophet. A prophet is one who is a seer of distances. The prophet is one who sees far things close up. The prophet is not one who views the, word, the world through a telegraphic telephoto lens. The prophet is one who's had his or her whole imagination so formed as to discern the ultimate significance of things by bringing those far things close up. We're going to see how she does that tonight in one story. But now on to uh, the, uh, the lecture itself. And I will try to talk this uh, as much as I can rather than simply then uh, read it. I'm not going to read it to you. I know we have a philosophy professor and at least one philosophy major here, so you'll like this. I suppose I read Aristotle at college, but not to know I was doing it. <laughs> and the same with Plato. I don't have the kind of mind that can carry such beyond the actual reading. That is, I have total non-retention that has kept my education from being a burden to me. <laughs> You may confess that I have total non-retention that's kept my education from being a burden to me. So I couldn't make any judgment on the Summa, St. Thomas, except to say this. I read it for about 20 minutes every night before I go to bed. How many of you have dipped into the Summa? It ain't bedtime reading. <laughs> I think she did this more as an act of discipline than an act of illumination. I think she hoped that she would simply absorb, as it were, osmotically, something of Thomas's vision by reading him. And by the way, at Beta, we use um, uh, Hank Bauerschmidt's fine anthology of Thomas's theological writings. Most people read him for his, his philosophical writings, but Bauerschmidt has come up with a really good collection 
of his theological writings. So, she says, if my mother were to come in during the, this process of reading Thomas um, and say, turn off the light, it's late. I, with lifted finger and broad, bland, and beatific expression, would reply, said contra. <laughs> On the contrary, I answer that light being eternal and limitless cannot be turned off. Shut your eyes. <laughs> or some such thing. So those how she deflates herself. Or some such stupid thing as that. In any case, I feel I can personally guarantee that St. Thomas loved God because for the life of me, I could not help loving St. Thomas. His brothers didn't want him to waste himself being a Dominican, and so they locked him up in a tower and introduced a prostitute into his apartment. He ran her out with a red-hot poker. Y'all know this famous story. It would be fashionable today to be in sympathy with the whore, but I'm in sympathy with St. Thomas <laughs> in that red-hot poker with which he drove her out. So O'Connor's knowledge of, a, of Aquinas is more from the assumption she gets from Thomistic thinking than from her actual reading of passages in the Summa and saying, well, he says this here and that there. So let me talk about four ways in which uh, O'Connor's um, work is uh, Thomistic and then one way in which it is decidedly not. However, before we do that, there's one passage I must read. It's um, one of the most crucial passages in O'Connor's whole life. O'Connor, after she graduates from Georgia State College for Women, uh, by the way, she, she majored, but I have tenure at Baylor, so this helps. She majored in the social sciences. She said, thank God they didn't take. <laughs> like a bad inoculation, <laughs> didn't work. Because <laughs> they're statistical. They, they measure human motive, motive and action by graphs, by charts, by the predictable. And human freedom throws all that stuff to waste. She refused to major in English because they were still diagramming sentences in college, subject, verb, object. <laughs> uh, and so, during her senior year, she was taking a course in the humanities under a book by, uh, written by John uh, Herman Randall called The Making of the Modern Mind. Professor Coons may be the only person here who knows that book, The Making of the Modern Mind, whose thesis is the Middle Ages were just a huge mistake. The Middle Ages were stu superstitious, backward, um, tyrannical. Uh, the church stomped everybody over into the ground and just a bunch of stupidity. Lanny O'Connor, who didn't like to speak, raised her hand and said, sir, may I come to the board and outline Thomas's five proofs for God's existence? <laughs> this is an undergraduate, a shy undergraduate. And he was so impressed, this professor said, look, you've got to go to graduate school. You've got to go to graduate school. And so he helped her win a scholarship to the University of Iowa and the famous um, Iowa, Iowa Writers' Workshop, where she was the top student. Uh, whenever visiting dignitaries would come to Iowa City, she was always there. They always had her read one of her stories, not some of the second raters who were there. And so she did so well she won the MFA. She published a couple of stories while she was a graduate student. And then she won um, a fellowship to go to uh, Yaddo. Yaddo is a writer's colony in upstate, I think it's upstate New York. Again, where she did very well. Off to herself. Uh, she went to Sunday Mass with a dishwasher because these secular writers couldn't give a fig about Sunday Mass. And um, she said, I always made sure I got out of the room before they started breaking glass. Then after Yaddo, she went to live in New York. 
This is really something you want to think about. I wanted to live away from the South to write about the South. Only when you live at a certain critical distance from the world that may have shaped you for the good or often for the ill, you've got to have some separation from it. And so she went to live in the, of all places, the YWCA. She said, um, it, the heating was really bad, though I did not come to the point of stuffing the New York Times down my pajama legs to stay warm. <laughs> she said, in fact, there was one Southern writer living at the Y who boiled his grits over, uh, sorry, who boiled his coffee grounds over and over and over again and then served them as grits. I wasn't quite that poor. But on the occasion that I'm about to describe, she meets a couple from Harvard, Robert and Sally Fitzgerald. Robert Fitzgerald's a major translation of both Greek and Latin epics. They had, as Catholics say, nine kids and counting. Um, they had a upstairs apartment, uh, a ground floor garage apartment where Flannery could spend her days writing. They would drink cocktails later and spend the evening uh, talking ideas. And she said, um, the only problem was the food always got cold while they said those interminable Latin graces. <laughs> on and on and on and on and on. They met, the Fitzgeralds met O'Connor at the scene that I'm about to describe. Once, five or six years ago, I was taken by some friends to have dinner with Mary McCarthy and her husband, Mr. Broadwater. Mary McCarthy was an important writer of the 50s, a kind of doyen of the American left. She had written a book called Memoirs of a Catholic Childhood, whose basic thesis, look how I outgrew the Catholic Church. It was just too small for me. But she got to talking um, and got around to saying, you know, I don't believe any of that Eucharistic stuff. But you know, I find water I find water, I find bread, I find wine to be useful symbols in my fiction for when those things appear, people perk up and listen and think, well, maybe something's significant here. But for her, it was simply a symbol. So she said, we went at 8 o'clock, and at 1 o'clock, I hadn't opened my mouth once there being nothing for me to say in such highfalutin company. Robert and his wife, Elizabeth, Lowell, great American poet, then Catholic, and his now wife, Elizabeth Hardwood, uh, having me there was like having a dog present who had been trained to say a few words but overcome with inadequacy had forgotten those few words. I had a friend at Wake Forest who had a chihuahua whose name was Deacon. And the Wake Forest sports uh, mascot is a Deacon. And so they had trained that dog to say, Deacon, had you rather be a Tar Heel or be dead? And that dog would flop right on the ground. <laughs> he said, that was more or less what I was supposed to have done but forgot what to do. She said that when she was a child and received the, the host, she thought of it as the Holy Ghost. He being the most potable person of the Trinity, you can drink it. Now she thought of it as a symbol and implied it was a pretty good symbol. I then, I remember O'Connor did not like eye contact. She said my function at my mama's tea parties is to cover the stain on the sofa. She did not speak unless spoken to. 
who had not uttered a word from eight until one, five hours. I then said in a very shaky voice, well, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. You get a point? This is either God's own body broken and given for you. Take, eat, all of it. This is God's blood shed for you. Drink until he comes again. It's either that or it's something to be ridiculed, laughed at, mocked, stepped on. She said, when I said it was to hell with it, that was all the defense I was capable of. But I realize now that this is all I will ever be able to say about the Eucharist outside of a story. Except that, if you're Catholic, you might want to think about this. Except that the Eucharist is the center of existence for me. All the rest of life is expendable. And she said the Eucharist is as valid when a priest comes and says the Mass out of a suitcase he carries with him in a boiler room as when set upon the high altar at St. Peter's by the Pope. So if we keep that in mind, this is one with a deeply Eucharistically formed mind, imagination, fiction, thought, and above all, life. So four ways then in which, uh, and I'll try to make this fairly brief, Aquinas' work figures in O'Connor positively. Um, She was very much taken with the actual medieval um, affirmation that there is nothing in the intellect that was not first in the senses. Where you don't begin with the Platonic forms and try to get back down to the earth, you begin with the senses. And it's the senses then that form the mind. And of course, this is a very deep incarnational principle that we know even God, not first through his humanly mediated self-disclosure in the Jews and Jesus and the church, but in and through material things of the created and recreated order. We learn of God through bodies, healthy and unhealthy. Through trees and tsunamis, through skies, and wars. So Christians are for her, via St. Thomas, thoroughgoing materialists. It's a very important word. God became matter. God became flesh. God assumed the form of human nature in the rabbi of Nazareth. And therefore, the flesh is good. I learned from Alistair McIntyre that while Christians are not materialists, they are not physicalists. That's the counter word to materialism, physicalism. That is the notion that everything that happens in the universe happens by second causes only. Cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. A dot and a blank, a dot and a blank. That's why computers are so good at what they do, because they assume everything is done by these secondary causes. For example, the American Physics Association several years ago came out with the following claim. Get this. The universe is both unsponsored and undirected. It's an accident. Alvin Plantinga, a very important philosopher, 
then at Notre Dame, wrote the American Physics Association and said, on what grounds do you make that claim? Where were you standing when you saw that it wasn't unsponsored? How do you know it's not going anywhere? And believe it or not, they withdrew their claim. Thanks to a smart Christian philosopher, there may be some in this room in the making. So while Christians are materialists to our core, we are anti-physicalists. The thing that most impressed O'Connor, however, about Thomas came from Jacques Maritain, M-A-R-I-T-A-I-N. Again, a person really worth your reading. Because O'Connor was taken with the, what she called St. Thomas's cold and beautiful description that art is reason in making. Art is reason in making. And what, therefore, Maritain taught her is this. Art is a virtue of the practical intellect, not of the moral intellect. The goodness of a work of art does not depend upon the goodness of its maker. In fact, <laughs> he quotes Oscar Wilde. Jacques Maritain, the Catholic philosopher, quotes Wilde who said that a man is a poisoner says nothing against his prose. <laughs> a very great prose uh, writer who was read poisoning people. I like Chesterton even better. Chesterton said that a man can shoot his mother or grandmother at a hundred yards indicates that he's a good shot, though he may not be a good man. So O'Connor knew that she was not a good woman in the deepest sense, that she was short of the corporal works of mercy. She was dying, of course. I read just last night, though I've read everything she wrote several times. She said, I can't even get on my knees to pray. How could I be distributing food to the, she didn't say that, I'm saying that, to the hungry. How could I visit others who were sick? So she never thought of herself as a holy, pious, good person. She thought of herself as a woman called to perfect her craft. To work so hard on its form that there was not one extraneous word that should have been left out or one missing word that should have been brought in. So on average, she wrote two stories a year. Draft after draft after draft. Now the term papers. After draft. There are drawers in Millersville that deep with one story. These drafts. She said, therefore, you know, I never begin with an idea. How might I illustrate through fiction this idea? That would be the death of fiction, she said. I begin with a scene. I begin with a situation. I begin with people and say, how in the heck did they get themselves in this fix? And how might they get out? And therefore, her repeated phrase, the topical is poison. The topical is poison. And friends, we live in an age where almost all of our art, literature, and culture is topical. And it's poisoning us. So seldom <coughs> do we encounter real art. <clears throat> her motto was, sink the theme, sink the theme, sink it to the bottom so that it has to percolate to the top. So when she was asked, Miss O'Connor, would you mind telling us the meaning of this story? She said, I sure would <laughs> mind it. If I could tell you the meaning, I wouldn't have wrote it. <laughs> the meaning is inseparable from the matter. The two are intertwined without remainder. And therefore, you want stories that will leave you permanently questioning, thinking about why that happened.
those things happened. And that's what her stories will do for you. You will not say, she says if you reduce a, a fiction to an algebraic formula, then you can forget about it. She wants us to remember her stories. And the one I'm about to walk you through is one of her most unforgettable. So that's the first thing that she learned from, second thing from Thomas, that art is reason in making and that it is therefore a virtue of the practical intellect. However, at one point, and one point only, does O'Connor depart from blessed St. Thomas. And that is in his claim. And um, it's really good to come down to Austin's so I can read Latin and mispronounce all the words and not be reported back <laughs> to the classics department. Uh, I'm like the character in Shakespeare who has little Latin and less Greek. What Latin I have is chicken pride, <clears throat> as you will see. So if you know, this is Thomas's motto. Gratia non tollet naturum sed perficit. Grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. Our grace does not remove nature, but fulfills it. That means that for Thomas, nature and grace have about them, now this is the 13th, 12th century, uh, a quality of interstitial interwovenness that is so complete that you don't have to worry about their being pushed off at a distance from each other. O'Connor believed we would live in a much later and troublous time where that kind of high Christian Thomism doesn't work. We live in an age of unprecedented violence. The age of ashes, the epoch of blood, rightly named by St. John Paul II, the culture of death. As a couple of my students here will recall, I never tire of saying the unpleasant. More people were killed by violent means in the 20th century than in all preceding centuries combined. Most of them by their own governments. None of them, almost none of them under Christian auspices. And therefore she says what Thomas, as Hank Bowersmith points out, could never say. And that is, nihilism is the gas we all breathe. Nothingness. The conviction that our lives come from nowhere, go nowhere, and have only such meaning as we can ourselves subjectively give them. In that awful phrase from Anthony Kennedy, uh, the so-called Catholic Supreme Court Justice in um, Planned Parenthood versus Pennsylvania, the famous mystery, mystery clause. You all know that clause? <laughs> uh, it, it, is, it is so bad, it's good, if you know what I mean by that. Um, uh, he says, every person has the metaphysical right to construe reality as he or she sees fit. Every person. That sheer subjective, not relativism, but nihilism. So that Hitler had the, had the right to construe the world exactly as he did. Mao the same. Stalin the same. Now, here's the most shocking thing I'm going to say tonight. And O'Connor said it. Nihilism is the gas we all breathe, whether outside the church or inside the church. This is about 1957. Mr. McCarrick, as he's now known, could tell us a lot about nihilism in the church, friends. What he was doing with those seminarians. Yeah, nihilism right in the church. Not in, only in the circumambulant 
world. So one of her best short essays is called <clears throat> Introduction to a Memoir for Mary Ann. Mary Ann was a, a young 12, 13-year-old girl <clears throat> who developed a neuroblastoma <clears throat> which pushed out one eye, a huge growth, <clears throat> that pushed out one eye and it had to be bandaged and left hanging over her forehead. And of course, O'Connor knew that if it had not been the Sisters of Mercy, that, the, sorry, the Dominican Sisters that rescued her, founded by Hawthorne's daughter, Rose Hawthorne, she would have been let to die quickly. And if that had been known from the time of her conception, she would have been aborted. And yet that girl made a transformative witness to everybody who came within her circle there in this home in Atlanta, Georgia. And she writes in her preface to a memoir for Marianne these words. One of the tendencies of our age is to use the suffering of children to discredit the goodness of God. She's thinking of Ivan Karamazov. Ivan, who could not believe in God, when a 13-year-old girl going through puberty wets the bed every night and therefore is stashed in a freezing outhouse with negative 35-degree temperature, crying, dear, kind God, help me. And he didn't. And she died. And Ivan therefore said, God is dead. All things are permitted. She says, in this popular pity, we call it care, we call it compassion, you know all the other magical words. We mark our gain in sensibility and our loss in vision. If other ages felt less, they saw more, even though they saw again with the blind, prophetical, unsentimental eye of acceptance, which is to say, the eye of faith. This is a woman who's going to die at 39 who has that unsentimental eye. In the absence of this faith, we now govern by tenderness. It is a tenderness which long since cut off from the person of Christ is wrapped in theory. And when tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, its logical outcome is terror. It ends in forced labor camps and in the fumes of the gas chamber. Walker Percy wrote a letter almost identical to that to the New York Times, and they refused to publish it. You can see how unpopular and how radical that view is. She felt that Aquinas just couldn't help her. Deal with the kind of violence, the massive deaths, the pervasive nihilism of our whole culture. She had to have something far more radical, something that indeed was itself violent. She said about our culture, you've got to push back against it as hard as it pushes against us. We have stopped our ears to the divine voice. We have blinded our eyes to the divine vision. And therefore, she says, you have to break through. And then one of her most stunning phrases, she says, <clears throat> To the almost deaf, you have to shout. And to the almost blind, you have to draw large and startling figures. So her fiction is a fiction of the grotesque, of the exaggerated, of the outrageous. And you have to get used to that because what she's doing is never making that violence ever an end in itself. That would be decadence. That would be gore. 
She instead makes it the way to God's grace. In fact, her motto is, grace must wound before it can heal. In our culture, we have to be wounded. We have to be knocked out of our nihilism. Okay, this is a story. Did you all get the sheet uh, that I passed out? Good. Thank you very much. This is a story about, um, well, very much a story about Flannery O'Connor herself. She is, in many ways, notice the unnamed girl, if you, re- if you read the story, who um, has two cousins come to visit her, two older cousins come to visit her, who are convent trained teenagers just as O'Connor was a convent trained pre-teenager they at 14 are going through puberty she the girl who's unnamed is 12 and has not yet reached puberty and so these girls make fun of the Catholic None, Sister Perpetua, because she has told them what she should, they should do if in the back seat of a car a young man got fresh with them. So here's how it goes. They're laughing, they're joking. And they've, in, in fact, they've named themselves Temple One and Temple Two because she's told them, your temples are the Holy Ghost. So she asked them, why they named them those, that, themselves that? And that sent them off into gales of giggles. Finally, they have managed to explain. Sister Perpetua, by the way, I read up this afternoon, this morning. Sister Perpetua with her slave, Sister Felicity, not sister, a slave named Felicity, were catechumens who were finally executed. But in one telling of the tale, not before they had their breasts cut off. And so they're often pictured with a, a, a platter presenting their breasts to God. Think of the surgeries in our time. Same thing. O'Connor sees it. She's so smart. The oldest nun, Sister Perpetua, at the Sisters of Mercy in Mayville, had given them a lecture on what to do if a young man should. Here they laughed so hard they were not able to go on without going back to the beginning on what to do if a young man should. They put their heads in their laps on what to do if. And they finally managed to shout it out. If he should quote, behave in an ungentlemanly manner with them in the back seat of an automobile, Sister Perpetua said they were to say, stop, sir, I'm a temple of the Holy Ghost. And that would do it. (laughs) You have to be trained with like O'Connor's humor. The child, 12-year-old, sat up off the floor with this blank face. She didn't think anything so funny in this. Her mother didn't laugh at what they said. I think you girls are pretty silly, she said. After all, that's what you are, temples of the Holy Ghost. Well, the story proceeds, and I'll have to sum up pretty quickly, with O'Connor doing all, uh, the, uh, the young girl doing all she can to deflate the stupidity of everyone else around her by talking about how dumb they are, how they don't catch a joke. And then finally she gets the chance to deflate the faith of two Church of God preachers. 
Flannery O'Connor, by the way, was once asked, what would you be if you were not a Roman Catholic? And her interlocutor assumed, well, you know, high church Anglican, probably. Uh, maybe a liturgical Methodist. She said, no, if I wasn't a Roman Catholic, I'd be a church of God <laughs> member. Because I'm a Catholic, not the way someone else would be a Baptist or a Methodist, but the way someone else would be an atheist. You get it? Atheists can't forgive God for not existing. And so, therefore, they take him with utmost seriousness. Well, it all comes to a climax when these sisters are going to be taken out by these two Church of God brothers. And these Church of God brothers sing a hymn I grew up on. And I would wager none of you did. That's okay. I've found a friend in Jesus. He's everything to me. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. Bum, 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 bum. That's how the piano goes down the line. <clears throat> he's, he's the lily of the valley. In him alone I see all I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. In sorrow he's my comfort. In trouble he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. Anybody ever heard that? You've been educated. <laughs> or the church, of, the church of God boys sing this one. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange some day for a cross. You ready for me to sign a contract as an, as an, an agent with an agent? How many of you ever heard of that one? Eins, zweis, right? That's not bad. Four, good. Five. Well, these young preacher boys. And she says, by the way, they're Church of God preachers because you don't have to know nothing to be a Church of God preacher. Well, the Catholic sisters then sing the hymn of Thomas Aquinas. And I'm not going to sing it, though I've sung it in services of benediction. The top of the page. You all know it? When I gave this lecture one time at the Wake, at the at the Baylor uh, Catholic Students Center, the students began to sing it. Down in adoration falling, this great sacrament we hail. Our ancient forms of worship, newer rites of grace, prevail over. Faith will tell us Christ is present when our human senses fail. To the everlasting Father and the Son who made us free, and the Spirit, God proceeding from them each eternally by salvation, honor, blessing, might, and majesty. Well, the Church of God boys are hugely unimpressed, and they say, that must be Jew singing. <laughs> Anything that's foreign just has to be much of Jews. And that sends this 12-year-old into fury. You big, dumb ox, she shouted. You big, dumb church of God ox. <laughs> I can tell that Hannah's caught it. Have you all caught it? What was Thomas's nickname? The dumb ox. 
He was heavy in girth, slow in movement, often seemingly naive uh, in his classes. When he was a student, students said, look at the cows flying out in the pasture. And he'd run to the window to look. But his teacher said, but when the ox roars, the world will have to listen. Anyhow, here's how it all turns out. The uh, <clears throat> sisters are allowed by the young girl's mother to go to the county fair. And there they are allowed to go into a room where there is a man profoundly disfigured. He has both a vagina and a penis. And of course, everybody stares. Even a few laugh. Now this little girl is back at home. She doesn't see any of this. And we are not showing it straight on. But then when they tell her what they saw, here is what she then begins to think about. Because you see, O'Connor is saying this young girl has been catechized to know basic Catholic things, but she's made two gargantuan mistakes. The two things nobody can be proud of are her brains or her faith. They're both given. Faith is a gift, though it has to be cultivated. No one goes out and finds smart parents to give them birth as a smart child. And this just astonishes, this astonishes the young girl, and so she does the following. Oh, by the way, when she's saying her prayer, she tries to run through the Apostles' Creed as fast as she can. <laughs> then she decides, well, I, I, would, I would be a martyr if they would kill me quick. See, for O'Connor, the world's greatest dread is the dread of suffering. And suffering is the only way to faith. The cross is an emblem of suffering and shame. Christians are bearers of that cross. But this little girl's Catholic imagination finally is brought to heel by this freak. And here's her description of what he would have said and what would have happened afterwards. She lay in bed trying to picture the tent with the freak walking from side to side. He has on a dress and he pull up his dress to exhibit his privates and go to the other side, men on one side, women on the other, and do the same. She was better able to see the faces of the country people watching, the men more solemn, notice, than they were in church, and the women stern and polite, with painted-looking eyes, standing as if they were waiting for the first note of the piano to begin the hymn. This is now the little 12-year-old recasting what she has heard from her two 14-year-old cousins. She could hear the freak say, God made me this way, and I don't dispute it. And the people saying, Amen. Amen. God done this to me, and I praise Him. Amen. Amen. He could strike you this away. Amen. Amen. But he has not. Amen. Amen. Raise yourself up, a temple of the Holy Ghost. You, you were God's temple, don't you know? Don't you know? God's Spirit has a dwelling in you, don't you know? Amen. Amen. If anybody desecrates the temple of God, God will bring him to ruin. And if you laugh, he may strike you this away. A temple of God is a holy thing. Amen. Amen. 
I am a temple of the Holy Ghost, says the freak. Amen. Do you see what she's done? O'Connor, with her unbelievable prescience, her vision of things far off, brought near, sees that human sexuality will be the focus of the late post-Christian world. And therefore, for someone to be rendered sexually freakish is not something that our world would tolerate. Instead, it would say that he shouldn't have been born or she should have the things between his legs removed. And this untutored freak, disabled in the way that our world regards as most of all to be dreaded, accepts this condition and says, I don't dispute it. God made me this way and I'm doing the best I can. That, by the way, is St. Thomas's definition <clears throat> of the pagan who's never heard the gospel. One who does the best one can with what one has. He's doing that. And therefore, he's one of O'Connor's heroes. And the little girl is transformed as she imagines this freak as a priest or a pastor leading his flock in this great litany of confession and praise. My wife said I've never given a lecture that was too short, but please ask me questions if you would. I'd like to <laughs> grapple with them, with you. I might just quickly, yes, please, loudly so I can hear you. I'm one of whom our Lord speaks, says they have ears to hear but hear not. Will you repeat that for me? Yeah, so he said um, moments of grace in Flannery's work are always accompanied by moments of great suffering. Mm -hmm. Yep, grace must wound before it can heal. The, 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 the sore, the knot, the swollen appendix must be cut open and the corruption pour out before it can be sutured back together. And Bowersmith said, that's just not the way Thomas works. And so at that point, she is removed from Thomas. Does that help? Then again, that doesn't mean suffering is, is not a problem. Please, please, please. It is the major objection against not only God's goodness, but God's reality. The culture of death. 180 million. What is God doing? So for her, you have to wrestle long and hard, but not to leave yourself in these grand abstractions and theories about what might have happened, but dealing with what's right before us. Um, she was very fond of the letter that um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, the greatest Catholic poet, of the 19th and I think of the modern world, wrote to his friend Robert Bridges, the popular poet laureate who couldn't really come to believe. And he said, Hopkins, please explain to me what it means to believe. And Hopkins wrote back with two words, give alms. You got it? Give alms. Do something that takes you outside yourself so you're not burrowed down into the endless hole called hell. Yes, ma'am, please. I will try to hear you. I was just wondering, when you said that she disagrees with St. Thomas, 
um, that grace does not build on nature. It's the, and hang on, hang on. It is, but now it has to be built upon nature that is so nearly ruined that it must be an unnatural kind of building. Whereas for Thomas, it was a natural building. So that's why Grace is violent in her books. Mm -hmm. I think so, yeah. But it finally does heal after it has sliced open. But the healing involves always suffering. Yeah, yeah, she was much influenced by the 50s new critics, yeah. Um, that, that art is autotelic, it has its own end, and is not made for, it's just propaganda. If you write, if you make art for something outside its own inherent wholeness and perfection, it's propaganda. And that's what we have, propaganda. Does that help? Well, you've been all very patient, and I salute what the Thomistic Institute is doing here. I've been wonderfully hosted, and uh, I have my card. If I have a website full of O'Connor. I have a book on O'Connor. That's shameless for me to say that. Uh, still in print, still for sale, paperback. Uh, so I hope we can stay in touch. Thank you.